Well, today I'm joined by uh, Conservative MP for Bury South, Christian Wakeford. Uh, thank you for joining me. Not a problem, Luke. So, uh, what motivated you or inspired you to get into politics? <laughs> I, I actually went back to, to my old college um, back in April um, to do their World Career Day. Um, that was the first question, and it was probably more interesting because someone who was in my politics class at college uh, was asking that question. And I think when I, when I first started, I didn't actually have a, any real interest in, in politics. I, um, I, I chose to do politics for A-level because a friend was doing it, and I thought it'd be great to go to the pub with someone at lunch. Yeah. Um, so there was literally no interest whatsoever. And I, I think from those very early lessons, I, I realised that actually I, I did have an interest. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could relate things to my own upbringing and, and what I, I was thinking in regards to uh, in regards to party politics or, or from a business uh, studies perspective, that there seemed to be quite a lot of crossover as to where I fought and, and where that lay on, on the spectrum. So from starting with no interest whatsoever, uh, by the time I, I finished my, my A-levels, uh, despite it not being my best result, yeah, I, I chose to do politics for my degree. Um, joined, joined the Conservative Party at the uh, ripe old age of 18 and um, you know, I, I spent the, the rest of my life there and you know, I think in some cases you'd probably get less for murder. Mm-hmm. Um, I've uh, yeah, it's given me some, some great opportunities and you know, ultimately it's put me on those green benches in, in Westminster now. Um, but yeah, it, it just it grew from nothing and it just kept on um, kind of getting a, a stronger and stronger connection to the point I've been a, an area chairman for the party looking after Lancashire, I've been a regional deputy chairman looking after the entire Northwest. Um, a councillor, a county councillor, a group leader, and and now a member of parliament. Very nice. So what is day-to-day life like in Westminster? Genuinely can't answer that question because there's (laughs) there's no day um, similar. So, I mean, I I tend to travel down on on a Sunday now uh, because uh, trying to rely on a a train on a Monday morning, I think I had three or four weeks uh, where there were delays or cancellations, so it, it just wiped out the majority of the day. Um, so I started going down on on Sundays, and you know, I, I would be having meetings um, for the Monday morning, um, then a Hebrew lesson uh, Monday lunchtime, uh, and then meetings or questions and, and debates um, in the afternoon until um, we got ready to vote, which uh, would normally be about ten could be later. I think there's one instance where we were still in the chamber at two o'clock in the morning, uh, which is uh, always good when you've got a select committee the next morning and you need to be there for nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- Tuesday, because I'm on the select committee, um, is when we tend to have our meetings. Uh, so I'm on the education select committee as well. Uh, so that takes us probably up to about lunchtime and then it's it's more meetings, debates and everything else. And Wednesdays tend to be the interesting ones because that's when uh, opposition day debates um, yeah. take place where there is no meaningful change, but um, you know it's normally a topic trying to impose as much embarrassment or awkwardness as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we all remember the, the free school meals vote from last year, at no point was there ever any money attached to that. Uh, it was just a case of, we, we think you should do this. And even if that would have gone through on a pose, there would have been no actual change uh, mm-hmm. because it was just a motion saying, we think this is a good idea. 
Um, yeah. So they they are intentionally there to be bloody awkward. Um, mm-hmm. They are, um, but you can have, have some interesting debates in those. Um, so that t- uh, tends to be a, a Wednesday, de- depending what the business is for the house on a Thursday. Most people try to travel back at that point. Um, I, I came back last night because I had a ministerial visit this morning. Um, but yeah, I, I, I tend to find the debates I actually want to speak in the most tend to be the Thursday afternoon uh, backbench business slots, which uh, inevitably mean you're still down there at five o'clock on a Thursday uh, mm. to get a train back to do a constituency Friday, um, which, which is probably trying to sque- squeeze two or three days worth of work and visits into one day. Mm. Uh, so you can quite often be half an hour behind schedule after your first meeting and it gets worse. Um, so be- between that, trying to find some time for, for family, you know, friends at some point, or, or to actually mm. have some downtime, uh, except having known MPs who've uh, burnt it at both ends to a point they've actually made themselves seriously ill, um, trying, to, uh, trying to not go down that route. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is a challenge. So it's, uh, yeah, to say there's a, a day-to-day, there isn't, it's just so varied. Um, it's probably a bit more interesting now uh, that we're going back into full parliament as opposed to hybrid. So if you want to speak in a debate, you pretty much have to you know, put the entire three hours uh, into your diary as opposed to the five-minute slot where you, you thought you'd be and, and just pop, pop over, speak, and then leave. So it's... Mm-hmm. It's time consuming. There's you can rack up 16,000 steps on the estate uh, without mm-hmm. actually knowing because you're just running from one end to the other. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's taxing, but it's, it's hugely rewarding. Yeah. So would you say it's um, more time consuming for a member of parliament who is part of the, the Conservatives or Labour as opposed to the small parties or standing as an independent? Um, yeah, yes and no. Um, I, I think being in government, there's probably more expected in terms of being there to support. But I mean, we're 365 MPs, um, so so now with how Parliament was when it was hybrid, you know, you were putting into speaking things uh, almost to fill your diary out, um, mm-hmm. because if you weren't, you were you were sat in your office just waiting for a meeting. Uh, whereas now going back to the traditional way, you, you're kind of only really putting in for things that you're actually passionate about. Or you're an expert in, um, because the more you speak, the lower down the pecking order you tend to get uh, in terms of questions and everything else. So, uh, yeah, it's, it disincentivizes you to try and speak a lot. And when, mm-hmm. when you try to explain that to people, it's uh, it's rather counterintuitive. They want you to speak in everything, but trying to understand that the more you do, the less yeah. likely you are with speaking in everything. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a challenge. So you have to pick and choose the right moments and right what it bills or agendas yeah. or. Yes, yeah, so, so like I said, with being on the Education Select Committee, I, I could say, well, I'm a member of a committee, so I've, I've got a genuine interest in it, and that would tend to put you up the pecking order slightly, um, or if there's a, an all-party uh, group that you're a chairman of or a member of, again, that, that would try to put you up the, the order, but you'd have to tell the speaker about that before. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, like we saw with the, Af- the Afghanistan debate, there were 80 people who'd been in the chamber for seven hours um, who didn't get called to speak. Wow. Uh, so, was there anything about working in Westminster that surprised you? Um, it's, it's probably a tricky one to say because we, we only really had about two months uh, of working in Westminster before everything was hybrid, people were working from home and, and all, all the COVID measures. 
Um, so those first two months were basically trying to uh, find your way around Parliament for, for mm-hmm. a start. Um, because when someone says, um, this, is, this is my room number, can, can you come to meet me? It's like, well, I can, but I, I genuinely don't know where that is. Yeah. Uh, so there, there was quite a lot of that very early on. Um, I think really it's more kind of the, the general etiquette. Um, so, you know, to, to get the, the speaker's eye, the, you know, bobbing up and down and, you know, don't mm. wrong, but it's good for working out your calves. Um, but it's that or not being able to walk in front of someone else and, you know, remembering who, who's an honourable, who's a right honourable, who's a learned friend or a gallant friend. Um, yeah, yeah the, the actual etiquette was probably the more, more challenging thing uh, because there's no real training. Uh, we, we had an induction uh, for three days, but that was more, we recommend you do this in regards to particular types of work. Uh, of course, three days of PowerPoints, you typically remember none of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was still just a, this huge whirlwind. So, yeah, I, it's it's good to be kind of going back to normal. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think the sheer scale of, you know, how long a day can be and when you factor in, you know, you potentially have a, a, a dinner with, with groups or, or colleagues, um, you can quite clearly have 12-hour days for, for most days of the week. Um, and that, that would be a short day. So what would you say have been your biggest achievements so far as MP for Bury South? Uh, one, one of the, the main things I had is literally one of the five, well, six things I, I wanted to achieve uh, was to get a new school for Radcliffe. Um, and um, on 2nd of February, I think, this year, uh, we got it. So uh, literally to have one of my main aims uh, and aspirations for the seat to be achieved in uh, just over a year, um, especially in the middle of a pandemic, that that was a big tick in, in, in the win box. Um, I think other than that, there's been quite, quite a few uh, kind of national campaigns that we're working on, uh, whether that's on... Uh, adult literacy rates. So there's about 9 million people in the country who either can't read or struggle reading. Um, mm-hmm. So we do need to be, do, be doing more there. But uh, I guess uh, what, one of the proudest ones was to be inv- uh, invited by the foreign minister to Israel um, mm-hmm. to actually speak at a conference in Israel in the middle of, of the pandemic on, um, on combating anti-Semitism. Um, and when a, a foreign world leader invites you to speak, you, you kind of do it. Yeah. Um, so when my constituency is the largest uh, Jewish community outside of London, uh, we've been doing quite a lot of work on that, especially um, when there was the conflict earlier this year that flared up on, into blatant anti-Semitism on, on the streets of, uh, of the UK. Hmm. So what have been your biggest failures so far as MP for Bury South? And I know you've only been in um, for what, a short time, so you might not have wrapped up as many as someone who's served a full term, but is there anything that you can think of? I, I don't think it's necessarily fa- failure, but but finding that right work-life balance has, has mm-hmm. been a challenge. I mean, I, I have a, a very young family with a, a three-year-old daughter and uh, actually trying to find the time to actually see her has been a real challenge. Because um, obviously she'll she'll try to you know ring or speak to me when literally when I can't answer because I'm sat in the chamber or in a meeting and by the time I can call back she's either in bed um, yeah having bath time or, or just doesn't want to talk so that that's been a mm-hmm. a particular challenge um, yeah. there's there's been concerns as well when you get to 
um, to compromise. You know, compromise isn't a dirty word, but some, sometimes, uh, certainly from the opposition, um, you know, it, it can be seen as a compromise too far. And I, I think in particular of the, the international aid vote, um, I'm a keen believer that we should you know, go back to 0.7 as soon as we can do. Um, and then speaking to, to Rishi, seeking a compromise, um, you know, for, for some people that was a, you know, they, they thought I was coming across as hypocritical, uh, mm. which when, when it's literally a compromise what I asked for, um, then of course I was going to, to back it. But, uh, you know, trying to, trying to square both sides off um, and to do the right thing for everyone is um, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. So, are there certain MPs who are more willing to compromise, be it on both sides of the, the benches, or uh, yeah. it's it's a challenge? And we we've, we've probably seen it most polarized. Uh, I mean, the, the Brexit argument has polarized mm-hmm. uh, politics um, for most people. To then have COVID on the back of that, um, I mean, the likes of the COVID recovery group. You know, it's let's have no restrictions. Let's let's do this, and um, as opposed to the government, where probably at times we've either done too many restrictions or restrictions that haven't necessarily made sense, mm-hmm. and that that's not been helpful because there there hasn't been compromise be, between those two groups. Um, I I do think there's probably room for more in in politics, especially in party politics. Um, and you do tend to see that a bit more in some of the all party groups and uh, in some of the scrutiny committees. Uh, but in the chamber, it, it does seem it's it, it's all or nothing. And yeah. it's probably not the best way to do things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, is there anything about the current Westminster model that you think could be improved? I, yeah, I, I think there's. There could and should potentially be greater chance for um, for MPs to bring forward their, their topics for debate. So whilst you can put in for a lottery, um, all, all people are equal. Um, but when you have some people being able to get, say, 11 PMQs in the year and someone not being able to get any, you all have the same equal chance each week. But at no point is it factored in that you've just said, you know, five in a row once someone's not had it. So uh, I think some of the algorithms in terms of how uh, questions are picked could be improved. Well, actually to see a bit more opportunity for backbenchers to bring forward things they'd like to, to change so that, you know, there's one lottery at the start of every new parliament. And if you're not in the top, probably top 10, you're not going to get anything heard. Um, so you'll, you'll have some who've been very fortunate, others who might never get a chance in a, in a long party career. So I think trying to find a way to, to improve that would be helpful. Yeah. Do you think um, you could potentially work around that by, so what is it, after 100,000 signatures on, a, on an e-petition, it has to be debated in Parliament. If you were to use your, your social media platforms or wherever and what introduce to the people what your idea is, what your bill is or what you'd like to be discussed and then awesome. get enough public support yeah, for possibly. it. Possibly. Uh, I mean, the, the, the petition mechanism is already there. If it hits a certain threshold, um, it will go to, to debate. But that's, a, that's just a debate as to let's talk about this petition. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing actually has to be agreed. And in fact, I've spoken in some where I've disagreed uh, with the uh, contents of the petition. Um, I, I think when we've seen how 
some of the, the public can vote and yeah, I, I use the uh, the boating boat face um, argument mm-hmm. you know some, sometimes you know pe- people click for a petition because um, it just rocks up on Facebook um, mm-hmm. is it something they're passionate about no but for the five seconds it takes to sign it done so I, I think that there could be a way to go down that route but I, I'd like to see it maybe tightened up so it's not just you know we, we want to debate some random topic that actually has no relevance or, or no meaningful improvement to people's lives so whether or not there's um, a greater way to, to do that, that that would be something to, uh, to possibly look into. Mm-hmm. So what were the main factors behind you and the Conservatives winning Bury South from the Labour Party who had held it for the past 20 odd years outside of former Labour MP Ivan Lewis standing as an independent? Uh, well, it certainly helped that Ivan Lewis actually endorsed my campaign. Um, mm. I mean, don't remember, I'd have preferred him to do it a week earlier before postal votes went out. Um, but I, I think that certainly helps um, because I, I think earlier on there was a view that um, him standing as an independent would be beneficial because it would split the Labour vote. Um, in practice, it, it probably didn't. It probably split the Jewish vote. Mm. Um, which was probably more more damaging towards towards uh, our campaign. Um, I, I think we were in. There were probably two or three main issues. So there were those Corbyn as one um, in terms of his just general leadership. Um, the the manifesto offer, which just wasn't thought believable by a lot of people. Um, if if you promise the earth and keep on promising then at some point, you know, you, you'd lose all, all credibility with it. There was Corbyn and the anti-Semitism issues as well. And like I said, with having the largest Jewish community outside of London, um, that clearly resonated. And I think in, in particular on, on polling day, um, actually walking through the Jewish community and there wasn't a single Labour activist there, but people were stopping their cars to get out and give me a hug, have a selfie with me and... And, and wish me the best of luck because for the Jewish community, it, you know, I, I knew things were bad. I didn't realise it was leave the, ba- leave the country bad. And quite a few people had packed their bags um, in, in case it had got to that point. Um, so that was a particular issue, not just in, in the Jewish community, but for those with Jewish neighbours. Um, so there was a, a particular strong fear there. And then whether we love it, loathe it, bored of it, Brexit was clearly an issue. We'd, we'd spent four years kind of debating about it, arguing about it, and not agreeing a single thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, e- even myself, who uh, I'd like to think I am politically engaged, um, four years, I was bored of it. You know, mm-hmm. I just want, wanted something. Um, so to actually be able to promise a, a, an end to the debate and you know, just get, getting on with it. Um, that actually meant a, you know, a lot to a lot of people, and you know, especially in a, a seat that, that did vote for Brexit. And, you know that that really did did need to take place. Uh, but there were those who obviously didn't want Brexit or or uh, or wanted the entire thing stopping. But did they really want another four or five years of just debating about it? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah, like I said, love it, love it. Brexit and Corbyn were probably the two main issues. So I presume you'll be running for re-election in 2024. Uh, if so, what will you be campaigning for? Um, I, well, I'm, I'm certainly hoping to be re-running, um, although mm-hmm. the election could be a bit earlier. I think a lot will probably depend on the state of the economy when we get to that election. Obviously, we've had a very difficult year 
the economy does look to be bouncing back and bouncing back quite quickly. Mm-hmm. So uh, you've, we've already got the score we wanted for, for Redcliffe. Looks like we may well be getting the high street regeneration uh, that we're talking about. But for me, you know, leveling up and the leveling up agenda is it's education, it's it's skills. Um, so what more can we be doing there to to point to people in Radcliffe or Presswich or, or Whitefield and say, well, actually, we've improved your life chances because you know these qualifications, these courses, etc., are available and they weren't before. Um, mm-hmm. So that's probably something that I'm I'm particularly keen on. But not not just in terms of youth employment, but for those who are potentially needing to reskill or retrain as uh, as sectors you know do change. Um, so I think that's going to be the meaningful thing that, that we all have to have a strong, hard look at. Yeah, I think the main problem I've got with the, the levelling up agenda is just the it term itself. Yeah, it, it's, it seems quite a vague thing and it's almost a, an admittance of neglect that the fact that there is this disparity between how the North and the South and that they have to, it has to be levelled up. Well, and when the Conservatives have been in power since what? 2010 and then the Labour and Conservatives dominated politics for the past 100 odd years I, I just I, I don't find it um, inspiring or motivating at all yeah I, I think there's a, a couple of issues but so yes the Conservatives have been in power since 2010 for, for some reason and I don't know how he's been able to do it but you know Boris can almost say well that that wasn't me you know, I, I came in you know, in 2019. Uh, this is my government. Uh, you almost have, have to ignore the previous nine years. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of bought into that. Um, in, in terms of levelling up, uh, yeah, I, I've said quite a few times that it's, uh, it's vagueness is both its biggest strength and its biggest weakness. Mm-hmm. What, what does it actually mean? Um, you know, to, to me, it means education and skills. To some, it will mean a, a, a nice shiny new building in uh, the middle of their town centre to say, well, look, that's something physical you can see. Um, it may be a bit of both. Um, yeah. But it's it's one thing that there's been a lot of sound bites and a lot of talks about it, but no one's actually said, well, this, this is what that means. Mm-hmm. And it, it probably does mean all things to all people. Uh, in the north, it will mean one thing. In the southwest, it will mean tackling the the second home disparity. Um, for you know, even in my own seat, you know, it will mean one thing in one of my towns, something completely different in another one. Um, it, it probably is all things to all people, and you know that means you're not going to you know make the big changes that that you you're seeking to do so. And you know, it's a hell of a lot of money going into it, but it, it's social mobility to me. Yeah. So do you see the Conservative Party as being able to adapt to the changing political and social climate of a post-Brexit world? Uh, yes. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of the things I remember from um, my A-level, you know, conservatism is pragmatic. You know, we, we change in order to conserve. Um, so I, I guess unlike the, the Labour Party, where there's still those internal conflicts over the left and right, and whether you're Blairite or, or Corbynista, we don't necessarily have, have that argument. I mean, yes, the, the membership is probably further right than um, than the voter base, and, you know, like, likewise for the Labour Party, it's probably the opposite. But I think we're probably more adaptable to change quickly. Um, I mean, we saw we saw that under Cameron, 
um, mm -hmm. who try, tried his hardest to, uh, to overcome the, the, the nasty party of it. Um, and, and to probably some, some good extent on that, um, I mean, that said, the coalition probably helped with having to have a bit more of a, a liberal edge. Um, we then changed under May and we changed again on, under, um, under Boris. Um, so I, I do think we have the ability to do so. Whether or not there's the will to do so is it's probably the main question. So how do you feel about the party whip system? And do you not think it undermines our representative democracy? Um, it, it has its moments. Um, the party whip system in terms of discipline um, isn't ideal, but there, there's a, a greater side to it. There, there's a pastoral element for those who, who are suffering, don't know where to go, do need a bit of help. Um, so it, it, it certainly is helpful, but yeah, when I'm aware of colleagues who've been threatened uh, for not getting funding or not getting help if, if they don't back a particular vote, and yeah, I, I've seen that firsthand. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if we're meant to be there, and you know, I think the number of times when people say it should be country constituency party, and there are many times where it feels like it's it's completely the other way around, where it's party, country, constituency, and, and that's probably not the best way to do. But you know, unless you you change to a completely different system, um, and I, I don't know one what will there would be to do so, um, is from, from both main parties. Um, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Mm -hmm. So, is first past the post fit for purpose, or would you prefer a more proportionally representative system? Um, it's fit for purpose, um, but uh, would be the caveat. Um, for governments with probably more than a 30 majority, um, it makes things much more difficult. Um, so with, with an 80-seat majority now, the government can afford uh, rebels and not have to particularly worry about too much. Blair, with his 100-and-odd majority, could literally just force things through, you know, regardless as to whether his own bench has agreed agreed with it, um, especially when you factor in so many people who are actually members of the government, when you've got PPSs and trade envoys and, and everything else. Um, so I, I do think it's helpful um, mm. to a point. Um, I, I think there are still a lot of votes that aren't necessarily counted equally. Mm -hmm. um, so, so some of that's changed with boundary changes. Um, do I think the solution is PR? If someone can show me a PR system that, that would actually work, I'd, I'd be willing to look at it. Um, and uh, I think it was Churchill who said, uh, you know, democracy is the worst form of government apart from all others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you end up with coalition after coalition and that, that's arguably not the best solution, especially for challenges like uh, the pandemic or, uh, or Brexit, where you've almost needed someone to come through and say, this is, what, this is where we need to go, well, otherwise we're not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. um, so I, there's an argument for PR. I, I don't think it's convinced uh, many people or, or certainly the country yet, um, especially when you look at uh, the referendum in, oh God, what, when was it, 2012, if I remember. I mean, granted, mm -hmm. that was the worst form of PR, um, but I don't think there's any, any real appetite to you know, rehashing some of those arguments yet. So how well do you think the Conservative government has dealt with the pandemic? And do you think there's anything that could have been done better? I'll never stand up and say we got everything right. If I did, I'd, I'd be lying. Um, mm -hmm. I think on the whole, we've broadly gone in the right direction. 
um, searching for support for business and individuals is has been unprecedented and, and you know arguably one of the world leaders. Um, I think the the main issue would be communication. When you look at what's happened in say Scotland and compared to England, there's not a vast amount that Nicola Sturgeon has done differently um, to the Prime Minister, but she's communicated it better. So her approval ratings were going up and up and up, um, despite the fact that actually she wasn't really doing anything differently. Mm -hmm. um, certainly communication with members of parliament, you know, to be told at nine o'clock at night that from midnight you're going into heightened restrictions, um, that wasn't ideal, um, especially when you wanted details as to what that looked like and they couldn't give you any. Mm. Um, so I think communication's been, been probably the main issue. Uh, the vaccine programme has obviously been hugely successful, but when we looked at, say, the tiering system or some of the regulations that didn't make sense, I think that devalued ones that did make sense. So the 10 p.m. curfew, there was no scientific reason to do it. So, but what you did was create a, a bottleneck um, outside of a nighttime economy. So you know, we, we all saw the scenes of people's playing cricket on the streets of Croydon. Mm. Uh, and apart from the bowling technique being awful, that's, mm. that's not what we were try, trying to achieve. When you then have the, well, you can only go to the pub for a substantial meal. Well, I'm sorry, but COVID doesn't recognise if I have a scotch egg in front of me or, or I don't have any food. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that really didn't help. Um, it certainly weakened a lot of the arguments. And, you know, we're there now again with, with vaccine passports. Um, when I, I asked the minister yesterday what data there was to actually support it, there isn't any. Um, so whether it's a, a coercion to, to get people to get jabbed in the next couple of weeks very quickly and, and lo and behold, we don't do it, uh, I don't know, but it's it's not something I'm comfortable with. Um, mm -hmm. I'm certainly not a COVID sceptic. You know, my, my twin brother has been a nurse in the ICU ward for you know, the last 18 months. Um, but I don't, I don't think we've got everything right. Um, there mm -hmm. are things we could have changed. And um, I, I think ideally... You know, we've done something for those excluded groups as well. And you know, I know there was 3 million at one point and to still be at this point now uh, when councils, uh, it was almost a lottery. Some were using discretionary funding to help some of those groups. Others were saying the wording was so tight that they couldn't. And yeah, I think we probably needed a bit more in black and white as opposed to having gray areas of interpretation um, mm -hmm. because, you know, we, we saw some people uh, literally on one street um, being able to get support and three miles away in a different authority not being able to get support for the exact same issue. Um, so that wasn't helpful. Yeah, so I think you've already touched on uh, my next question. So it was, where do you stand on the proposed vaccine passport, COVID passports or vaccine passports? But it seems that you're not too in favour of them. No, excuse my French, it's batshit crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, personally, I see it as being, I don't know, a digital ID in disguise. Um, I mean, the, the Conservative government and just Parliament in general, I think in October of 2019, they introduced or they were um, looking at a digital ID um, in general to what would be like equivalent to a passport, um, which, I mean, conveniently, COVID is, I don't know, give it another... Um, new lease of life potentially um, and I, I don't know I think the one thing about the whole pandemic that 
personally worries me is the powers that is enabled governments to uh, amass or over these past two years and the, the precedents that have been set and that these powers have been given now what's to stop them being used again in the future be it under conservative under labor or under whoever else yeah um i mean it's uh, an illiterate um ill thought out illiberal uh, policy that that doesn't really help anyone uh, the gdpr implications alone about us having medical data um if you could actually show me some data that actually supported it i'd probably be a bit more inclined to back it um, where we are now it's I, I i can't think of any reason it needs to go through i can't think of any minister who thinks it's the right thing to do um but it looks like they're trying to progress with it anyway mm-hmm so do 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 but yesterday you voted with the government to increase national insurance how do you personally feel about it considering it contradicts one of the 2019 conservative manifesto pledges you were elected upon i, I think the peer made one point of the pandemic wasn't in anyone's manifesto mm-hmm. um it's clear we need to do something about social care i'm not necessarily against an increase in national insurance contribution I'm more concerned that at the moment we don't have a plan what we're spending it on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once you've created this NHS tax, social care levy, whatever you want to call it, it's very easy to increase. It's very difficult to get away. And mm-hmm. I, I think we've set up a very slippery slope, which will see almost constant tax increases to, to throw more money at a solution that isn't necessarily uh, fiscally based. I think that there does need to be reform for the sake of there needs to be a new approach. But mm. just throwing money at it doesn't tend to be the, the issue. Yeah, I think personally, I think some of the things uh, they've been doing has been a bit counterintuitive. So uh, one of the main underlying factors between whether or not you were likely to die of COVID was these what COVID mobilities. So if you were older or if you had obesity, heart disease, other health conditions, um, but that also coincided with the eat out to help out, which was incentivizing people to eat what well, not necessarily unhealthy things, but maybe have larger portions than they would normally be or would normally be going for. Or, I mean, you've seen what the rise of Just Eat and all these other um, takeaway and delivery companies that you can get all these foods delivered to your door. And I think the lockdown that incentivized people to buy takeaways more and more, which made people more and healthier. And then what the restrictions on, oh, you can only go and exercise an hour for a day or all these things. Like, I think we are contributing to our own health crisis and trying to throw money at it instead of the, what, the societal and cultural changes that need to be done. So I think incentivize healthier eating, make it, maybe cheaper and more widely available for people, um, maybe uh, culinary literacy. So where people, I, I don't know, in general could cook healthier meals at a cheaper price and in a mm. short amount of time. Um, I think this, if you personally, uh, I'd like well, to see like a curriculum for life. So I think most people yeah. leave education unable or unknowing on, on how to cook. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of key important life skills that you leave education without. So how to set up a bank, 
um, what, how to start a business, all these, what, how to cook, how to what, do a tax report, all these other things that you just expected to maybe learn as you go through it. Whereas I personally, I think you should be prepared for that before you get there. So you have, a, it's, you know, so it comes easier. And I don't know, I see life is that you should be learning throughout your life constantly, that each new day is something that you learn something new. It, it doesn't have to be some like, I don't know, a full degree or a full new skill, but just picking up new bits of information that you can use to facilitate your life. Yeah, and, you know, I think when we look at the obesity strategy, the food strategy, I mean, I, I, I want to see an alcohol strategy and, and do a mm. lot more work on alcohol harm. But there's a lot of things that with an 80-seat majority we could be doing that could make a meaningful change and improvement to people's lives. Uh, we just don't seem to be doing any of them. And what would you put that down to? Would you say is it leadership or the what the MPs who have been in the party for a longer time? Those are more higher up in the, the hierarchy or pecking order. I, I think a big chunk has been COVID taking up the majority of the um, the legislative agenda, and to some extent Brexit has as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think they're the startings of some of these conversations, mm. but some people, you know, myself included, would say, well, these conversations should have started you know, years ago. Why, why are we so late to the table? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I think there's a, a lot more that could, should and, and must be done in, unfortunately, you know, quite, a, quite a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. So if you had absolute power, what policies or initiatives would you introduce? Ah. <laughs> World domination, what would I do? Um, I'd probably have a full life, lifetime skills training budget. So not just to level three, but to guarantee up to level five being full degree qualification. Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean it would be a degree, but it would be at least the technical equivalent. Um, so that would help. Um, I would probably... Uh, try to do something in, ter- in terms of planning policy um, because you know, no one can agree anything. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd probably do some work on land banking, um, but actually fundamentally change the policy so it is brownfield first and have that on a statutory footing as opposed mm-hmm. to the council saying, well, you know, we, we want this for a policy, but we have no real grounds to do so. Um, from, it has to be education. I put more money into early years. We mm-hmm. uh, we we throw a lot at secondary education. We do some for primary education. Further education, it's great. We're finally talking about it. But if you get a child's educational career right early on, you don't need an intensive um, intervention in in year eleven. You know, uh, you know the most fiscally brutal conservative you know, would argue that could be a cost saving implication. Um, but if you get it right and you, you start with your phonics and, and your edu- you, you get these children who can read when they go to primary school. They, they can do uh, the basics and build on that rather than having to do basic education when, when they start and they should actually know some of this already. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've seen about the, uh, like the lifetime education type thing, uh, equivalent to a degree in a sense. Um, do you think that could be facilitated by a like community centres of sorts? So 
akin to like a university campus in that it has sports facilities, library, uh, communal spaces um, and classrooms that this learning could take place? Um, no, I, I think the one of the biggest travesties we've got is that the school um, estate is so underutilised, apart from what, half eight or half three, you know, they're not really used. So mm-hmm. what can we be doing to actually take advantage of our school estates and whether it's, you know, the school sports halls, you know, classrooms, you know, science labs, you know, mm-hmm. there's you know, a great resource that we, we don't use because no one's bought us to, well, what can we do to, to maximise this? And again, whether it's adult literacy or, or, um, or just general adult education in regards to uh, any field anyone wants to study, we, ha- we have these areas, we just need to use them. Mm-hmm. I think it could also uh, help with youth facilities as well. So giving young people a place where they can be congregate, can be at learn or do something that they're passionate about or interested in, as opposed to what, lurking in a park or wandering the streets aimlessly with nowhere to go. Mm. Yeah, and... You know, we, we speak a lot about youth zones and having greater resource um, available for, for young people. I think there's a big chunk of that. Um, but I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to say what I, I, I think you know, young people should have. That's for young people to say what they, they want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there just needs to be that engagement. Uh, I mean, yeah, I can think what I probably wanted when I was 16, 17, but that's probably changed quite a lot in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we do need to be, you know, speaking to these people and, and not just youth parliaments and youth councils, um, because for, for all the good intentions, you know, these aren't necessarily the, the ones who are, who are going to be in trouble with the police for antisocial behaviour or, or walking the streets. So we, we need to find a, a way to directly engage mm-hmm. uh, with, with some of these, uh, not kids, but, but young people to see what they want to do, what we can do to, to address that and, and hopefully have a, a meaningful way of tackling either youth crime or antisocial behaviour so that, you know, they're not getting into trouble. You know, residents are feeling safe in their streets and, you know, we can all hopefully have stronger, safer, more educated communities. Mm-hmm. Well, would you say that the, the closing of youth centres over the past 20-odd years has contributed to the rising, what young people having more interactions with the police or just genuine big dissatisfaction amongst young people or a, a lack of maybe social skills or future prospects because they've not had this closer sense of community that previous generations had. I think there's there's certainly a correlation. Um, I don't necessarily think that it's the sole benefactor you know we we've you know the, the change in media habits um or or how how we view things certainly the, the way we communicate mm-hmm. has changed i mean 20 years ago yeah i wouldn't have thought of an ipad or being glued to a phone like all, mm-hmm. all day every day but that that is a, a lot of groups now um but wherever it's the, the increase from the, I'm trying to remember the term now, I think it was happy slapping where you just slapped a, a random stranger and, and recorded it for, for Snapchat or YouTube. Mm. Yep. That isn't necessarily the lack of a, a, a youth centre. That, that's a, a fundamental change in culture that, that need, needs to be um, overcome. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I do think youth centres have played a role in that or, or the lack of youth centres 
Um, how strong that correlation is, I'm not 100% on that, but yeah, we, we certainly do need more facilities out there. Mm-hmm. You touched on uh, how we communicate has changed. And personally, I think that the way we communicate online, be it through social media or through text messages, emails, I feel that it's quite uh, disingenuous and you lose a lot of the meaning about what is actually trying to be fully communicated because what more often than not, the what is actually what you're actually trying to communicate is up to how the person reads that message mm-hmm. and how they interpret it, not necessarily how you want it to be interpreted. So you lose so much meaning from your what, body language, from the intonations in your voice, your pitch, your tone, how you say things. And that is completely lost on social media and on text. And I think that is what has contributed to part of the toxicity that we see online, especially when it comes to political debates. Yeah, and uh, I think it's it's far too easy to, to misread a, a written message, and whether it's caps lock and assuming someone's shouting as opposed to mm-hmm. f- just forgetting it was on, um, or, or reading something in, into a message that isn't necessarily there. It, we're now in a world where you, you can respond in seconds, and you know, emo- emojis are probably not help- helpful situation either. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we we probably do need to to all um, have a thought on this as to what can we do to to slow down. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, technology is improving, and that's not a bad thing. But human behaviour isn't necessarily keeping up. And if it's just t- taking that extra sixty seconds um, to, to read a message and say, well, how does that actually sound? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, we've all probably had a, a couple of drinks and then looked at something and double checked with a friend it's the right thing to send. Mm-hmm. Um, just tr- trying to have that kind of, I guess, com- compassionate view that that empathy is to you know is what I'm saying or how I'm saying it appropriate. Mm-hmm. I think too, people too quick to interpret it in a negative sense and always think the worst case scenario or that the other person has bad intentions. So I think Twitter is one of the, the main ones for this. In that someone will post something innocent and be a question that they don't know about or just an innocent comment in general and then you'll have people just piling on just being abusing them or undermining them calling them out solely because they asked a question that they didn't know about Hmm. and you know i think the number of times i've said to uh, and, and even the team here you should never be ashamed to say you don't know what the answer is mm-hmm. uh, I mean when when you're a parliamentary candidate you're not expected to know everything um, you know because you know you, you're not I mean I, I was an insurance broker um, but literally on, on day one you know, all of a sudden everyone just you know thought I'd be an expert on every field and some of these were things I'd never even heard of mm-hmm. uh, so I, I, I think things have become challenging from a political discourse point of view because of how polarised a lot of the arguments we've had have been. Um, mm. But I, I think part, part of that is down to, to members of parliament. You know, the, the language we use in the chamber or, or how we communicate with people, and a lot of that comes down to respect or, or a lack of. Um, mm. So if we're serious about seeing a beneficial change, we, we, we need to drive that change and, and be a part of it. Yeah, I think I see the... what. How the debates in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords, they're quite archaic, parliamentary language and just 
I don't know, it's that's not how real people speak to each other and address each other and discuss things and try and get things done and come to resolutions. Like PMQ's prime example where what Boris will stand up, say something, the Conservatives will jeer. Keir will stand up, say something, the other side will jeer. It's, that, that isn't normal. It's just like heckling matches where they're all just trying to get the most, most laughs or the best reaction out of their own tribe as it were yeah and we we all stand up and say we want an end to punch and judy politics but then yeah. actually everyone wants punch and judy politics yeah um it's a it's a tricky one because people some people enjoy watching that some some don't but everyone still tunes in um i mean you, you can guarantee you're very unlikely to ever get a, an answer from a question you can use um mm. in fact I, i've had many um answers to questions where i I actually sat down wondering what what the hell I was going to do with that response because it, it didn't actually address anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that, that we just need to come from the top and find a, a way around that. Yeah. So, would you say the well, answering a question without answering it is that down to what likes of use of jargon, double speak, bureaucracies where people are saying one thing and then saying another straight after it, which like just either contradicts them or says it in such a convoluted way that all meaning is actually lost to to some extent uh, i mean don't get me wrong if, if you don't want to answer a question you're never going to answer a question um mm-hmm. and you know some are intentionally there to to be bloody awkward um but actually we're all there to do a, a job and sometimes we we need that information um mm-hmm. So I think from from an opposition point of view, if all they're wanting to do is is be awkward, that's one thing. But if they actually want a meaningful question about a, an actual topic, then they should be engaging uh, mm-hmm. with with uh, with the opposition in advance. And and some members do do and uh, do that. And you know, if, if for example, um, it was Keir as PM, and I had a particular issue. Um, I'd, I'd want to be asking for the actual details about it, uh, as opposed to, um, do, do you agree that the Labour Party is awful and the Tories are great? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, mm. No one achieves anything from that. So do you think there's a way of, I don't know, calling someone out, if you were to ask a question, they didn't actually answer it, could you say, well, you've not answered my question there, or just you know, kick up a fuss a bit, or would you get thrown out of Parliament? Um... <laughs> You, you can raise a point of order, but there, there's there's nothing within the chair's power to say, actually, he didn't answer your question, um, here you go again. Um, if it gets to a point where a lot of questions don't ask, he can be awkward and issue an urgent question. Mm-hmm. But again, there's no guarantee you'll you'll get a response um, in regards to, to a lot of that. So I think it's, you look at strengthening the role of a chair, um, and fear what what could happen in the, in a similar issue to, to Berko, where he interpreted the rules completely different or, or created new rules, mm-hmm. and that added to, to a lot of the um, to the polarity, uh, polarity even of, of Parliament. So uh, it's it's a very tricky one where we need to be very careful what we wish for. Mm-hmm. Where do you stand on the decriminalisation or legalisation of cannabis? Um, mixed. Oh, 
Yeah, um, incredibly mixed. Um, I think we'd need to be doing more more on drugs. Um, I think the legalization would potentially remove the criminality and the gang aspect, which mm-hmm. is something that could and should be explored a bit further. Um, but I imagine one of the issues would be um, what uh, the government would do in regards to taxation. Um, but when we factor that alcohol is arguably one of the most dangerous uh, and cheapest drugs available, what more can we be doing with that? And I, I say that as someone who enjoys a pint. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think if we're looking at camp, we, we need a, a wider drug or addiction strategy in place first. Yeah, I think you touch on uh, one of the main arguments that I like to focus on is that a lot of the gang violence and just gang related instances, I think that would be curtailed and it'd hamper that a bit. Um, don't get me wrong, there still would be gangs and there still would be um, other drugs out there for them to move to, but I think. It, it reduced the opportunities for people to go in, into that or remove some of the like, incentives behind it. And as, as you say, alcohol is, I'd say more people die from alcohol than have ever died from, from cannabis. And I think one of my main issues with it as well is that the UK is one of the largest exporters of medicinal cannabis in the world. We export, I think, somewhere around 85% of it. Um, Theresa May's husband had a vested interest in GW Pharmaceuticals, which um, what, sold cannabis to other countries. But the reason why that was legal is that it had the, the physical properties, the CBD, that didn't what, have the effects on the mind. So it's just, even though what, in 2019, again, 809 people were imprisoned for it, and each prisoner cost be it 20. I think uh, I'm not too sure about the numbers, but like at least 20 grand a year per prisoner. And I mean, we're, we're imprisoning people for. Like, I know some people in prison for possession and, and what intent to what distribute and supply, but I think the possession thing and that. Should you, we, or should a government, should something that came in in what, 1966 to, or 72, the Misuse of Drugs Act that was introduced by um, the Home Secretary who also oversaw the troubles at the time uh, in Ireland, should we be allowing his ideas, his views, his values to restrict um, our liberty and what we want to do with our bodies and with our minds? Yeah, and you know, I think it's a, a very JS Mill um, type type of argument of you know, should you be able to do anything you want within the private sphere, providing it doesn't impact on on anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess the wider view is how how do you define that? Is it mm-hmm. the the then cost to the health service that everyone may may have if there is a, a wider addiction, um, mm-hmm. or is it? Uh, yes, it's. The argument's not without merits. Um, it's just yeah. one where I, I think a, a much wider view need, needs to be taken. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing I have with that argument is that there are a lot of vices out there that people that are a big burden and strain on the NHS. So what obesity-related diseases, be it heart disease and other things, are one of the largest costs to the NHS. And what we still have the massive thriving fast food industry, um, alcohol-related diseases and illnesses again we still have alcohol um, cigarettes are still legal e-cigarettes all these things that are contributing to um, health issues in people 
are, are still allowed, but something that is grown from this planet, from this earth, that it's natural, um, isn't. But I'm more than happy to move on to uh, a final question, which is, what's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? And don't say running through fields of wheat. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to find a, a field of wheat. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say naughtiest, stupidest. You know, there's quite a few of those. Um, and all which um, did involve alcohol. Um, mm. I, yeah, I at university managed to uh, break a leg um, through drinking and not know how I did it. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and 14 years later, I still don't know. See, there you go, the, the, the troubles of alcohol, eh? Just... Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm certainly uh, older, hopefully wiser, um, but yeah, things have changed a, a bit since then. Well, I'd like to thank you for joining me. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and hope to speak to you in the future. No problem. T- take care, Luke. Cheers.